to The B-Sides, a podcast for progressives who love pop music. We're your hosts. I'm Hannah. I'm Mimi. And I'm Becky. Tune in for new episodes every other Wednesday to hear our conversations on pop's place in our world. And the music you should put in your ears to fuel your reckoning with the trash fires all around us. Thanks for tuning in. Here we go. Hi, welcome back to The B-Sides. Hello. Hello. We are so happy to be back with you all, and we can't wait to dive into this week's episode. But first, subscribe if you haven't already. We've gotten a lot of new listeners in the last couple weeks, so we want to say a quick hello to you all and let you know that we are a podcast, but we're also a home on the internet for progressives who love pop. And we have an active Instagram account and a Facebook group and a Twitter and links to all of those will be in the show notes for this episode. If you're interested. And we're gonna, like, I think we're going to, st- I think we're going to launch a discord soon. So, you know, wow. get it on the ground floor of that. We're going to be everywhere. Voice. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. So if you've read the title, <laughs> I don't know if you'll be confused or not, but essentially today we're going to take a hard look at the American national anthem otherwise known as the Star Spangled Banner, which is an anthem that is doing the most and the least at the same time. It's very contradictory, just like the ideals of the country it represents. And we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about a few specific performances that are iconic in different ways. But first, and we didn't plan this originally, but we need to talk about a trend on the internet now that, uh, I don't know if it started on TikTok, but TikTok really pushed it into the stratosphere this week. And that is the term chuggy. Chuggy. C-H-E-U-G-Y. Let us know if you're listening and you've heard of this term, please. Or not. It's, I think it's a really, it's a really uh, special term because my understanding of it is that like, it you know it's like a word for a word that doesn't exist and basically it's things that are not on trend anymore but not in a way of like oh this was a trend in the 1960s and now it's not like it's things that people still uh engage with some people as if they are trendy (laughs) but they're just not anymore and in that sense it seems like it's taking a shot at elder millennials, which I kind of appreciate. Um, Is that like who it's defined for, do you think? I kind of think so. And okay. I, I think it's interesting, too, because Hannah, I remember you saying in our Britney episode that like elder millennials post differently. Like you said it very respectfully, but you're like, I don't understand what they're doing sometimes. Or it's like a little weird to me. And that's kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like in the line of... Uh, what this is I think yeah I think it also is like I mean I've seen Chugi being used to define girl boss oh Um, and if it hits very close to home something that like tries to be trendy but is never trendy wow don't tell Ariana Grande but she's hella Chugi (laughs) (laughs) sometimes Um, not all the time but positions is Chugi definitely 
big. The man big. by Taylor Swift, also Chuki. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've like thought about it too. I think we could do a whole episode on Chuki, or at least like we will do one on like girl boss and pop music. And Chuki's going to be a part of that, obviously. Um, but some people were like, well, is it like bullying to call someone Chuki? And it's like, bullying is when you attack someone. Someone responded with like, Bullying is when you attack someone's something that's like a part of someone's identity, you know, and very meaningful to them. So like, like making fun of them for posting minions memes is like not (laughs) bullying. They could change themselves. Right. So it's not bullying. Right. Um, (laughs) And often it's things that are very like, I don't know. It's all of these things are like part of, capitalism they're just like things they're not like identity pieces like girl boss is nothing ultimately well I definitely think one of the like tragedies of this stage of capitalism that we're in is that it's taken away a lot of people's personalities and replaced it with items and like people don't know how to have a personality outside of items you know and I guess minions count as an item a digital item yeah other examples, um, I think in this original TikTok and stuff were like those signs at Target that say gather. Yes. So okay. like things like that or um, rosé all day or cargo shorts or like office references and like Alexander Mifflin t-shirts. Okay. It's wine yeah. o'clock. <laughs> it's wine o'clock, like Harry Potter even. No. You know, it's. Do we know where the word came from? It's so, okay. I When I looked into this further, apparently it's been on Urban Dictionary since like 2018, meaning okay. that. But um, someone on TikTok said that she, like this past week, said that she and her friends, one of her friends, I think, came up with this word because she needed something to describe this sort of content. Got it. Um, and she was like, this word just kind of sounded like what I'm talking about here. So... Um, this is not chuggy, I don't think, but something that I just also caters to the elder millennial generation um, is two two specific parts in a movie I saw last night, which is not for our generation. It, have you heard of the Mitchells versus the Machines on Netflix? It's uh, adorable. No, it's okay. like a new animated by the same um, like Sony whatever crew that did Into the Spider-Verse, which I love that movie. So it's like definitely one of those movies that is for kids, but also the grownups who watch with them are supposed to love it too. And there's two parts of it that are like very much for exactly our generation, which makes me wonder like, is my generation supposed to like have grown children by now who can like watch these movies? But anyway, I won't spoil anything, but I will say that the song Live Your Life is featured prominently and um, Furbies being scary are featured prominently. (laughs) So... That's Furbies, yeah. Furbies is like a fucked up thing that we I had know. in childhood that like we don't talk enough about. This movie really answers that that fear that we've all had for generations. I I need to um, great movie. I really like. I need it. yeah. Thank you for that recommendation. I need to explore that because I never had a Furby, um, but my friend and roommate in grad school had them as a kid and was like they're fucked up and then as a joke one night uh we ordered a furby and it was it was it was like an american patriot furby 
it was like it had like a statue of liberty what hat and like an american flag and it didn't it it, it was from like 1998 it didn't turn on like we couldn't get it to turn on and then after i graduated she had another year and she like kept the furby and her new roommate like knew how to open it up to get like the battery running again <laughs> and they did that and then it like screamed <laughs> anyway they are wow yeah um they really are are they chuggy or no because that's that's too nostalgic and no one is engaging with it as new content i guess is that what it, the difference is yeah i think i think right now they're not chuggy because we're having like our first reckoning with them right but then maybe in a few years when people are like, hey, guys, like the Furby meme or whatever, at that point, it'll be like, we know, like we went through it. <laughs> and is Furby the one who sang that really weird national anthem in 2018? It could have been. <laughs> I, You know, I would be, that's a great segue. I would be surprised if Fergie had never, or Fergie. <laughs> It's like Furby had never sang the national anthem because truly everyone has. Um, So we're going to get into that. But any more thoughts on Chugi before it becomes like the underlying theme of this entire episode? Well, too late for that. It's it's here. It's Chugi. Yeah. I mean, the we were just talking about like, Becky, you said it first that the national anthem is Chugi. I think the national anthem is chuggy. I think, look, I think it depends on who's singing it that makes it chuggy or not chuggy. But as we'll get into it, I and I'll, I'll save my thoughts on the chugginess rating of when we dissect the singing. Like Marvin Gaye, never chuggy. Right. Classic. Class. It's classic and it's never going to be out of touch. The rest, we'll get into it. We'll see. We'll see. There's at least one like deeply chuggy item on the list no spoilers Um, no spoilers yeah I mean it's it's very contradictory and it's chuggy and not chuggy at the same time and and we're going to talk about that so we're going to start by we're going to talk about the lyrics to the Star Spangled Banner the music itself and also the weight behind it as a performance piece through some of these examples I generally find myself bored by the anthem and fascinated by some of the performances of it and reactions to those performances. It's a really, really hard song to sing just objectively. Um, And also it's a high stakes, like milestone legacy song for a lot of artists, because on the surface, it's like some sacred tune about how America is the best and you'd better do a good job performing that concept in song or else. And so, like, when I was like, we should do an episode on this, and you guys were like, okay, um, it, I mean, it felt like sort of smooth-brained to be like, the Star Spangled Banner is bad, because, like, national anthems are generally about nationalism, and nationalism is generally about rallying certain groups of people around certain historical myths that support superiority complexes and tribalism and state violence and war and all of that is bad so it's like all right great um but I do think it's interesting to think about the work that the national anthem does in a number of settings 
national anthem performances often have these huge captive audiences and at least on the surface reflect the values and traditions of the people. I think we know who those people are generally. Um, And so like a performance of the song and the outcome can sometimes tell us a lot about where an artist is in their career and where we're at in American culture, in American history. So I don't know. Our star spangled banner ourselves, basically. Gloria Steinem said it best. Uh, So there are many different types of artists end up doing the Star Spangled Banner at some point. And those performances can be so hard to nail and yet also so easy to fuck up, which we'll see. Especially when you consider that millions of people may be waiting in the wings at all times to have a violently patriotic, a.k.a. very out of proportion reaction when someone fucks it up. Which again is so easy to do because the song is so hard but praising a select few for being exceptional and gleefully watching everyone else more or less fail is the american way and the star spangled banner is all about it that said we're going to give a bit of historical and musical background and then get into some iconic performances to illustrate what we're talking about here but first let's just take a little quick break This episode is sponsored by Nubian Vibes Yoga and Retreats. Relax. Replenish. Revive. The world is ready to heal and so should you. Get ready to declutter the mind, replenish the body, and revive the soul through yoga. Nubian Vibes Yoga and Retreats is excited to offer virtual and in-person yoga classes and yoga retreats. Connect with your favorite instructor and fellow yogis without all the stressors of the world. The founder, Taja, might even host a beach yoga class at a location near you. So subscribe today to their newsletter, which is called Issa Yoga Vibes, to be the first to know about their offerings and resources. You can get the newsletter at tinyurl.com slash Issa Yoga Vibes Retreats. That's tinyurl.com slash I-S-S-A-Y-O-G-A V-I-B-E-S R-E-T-R-E-A-T-S. Hi, I'm Natalie. And I'm Cass. And we're the hosts of Shared History. A comedic history podcast exploring the stories of the often overlooked or underrepresented. The people and events your history books may have glossed over, whitewashed, man-washed, or left out completely. From the Mayan creation myth to the deaf president now movement of the 1980s. From ancient scientist Avicenna to first female principal chief of the Cherokee Nation, Wilma Mankiller. If you saw it in a footnote once. Or have never heard of it. We are here to share it with you. Join us in a rotating guest list featuring scholars, writers, teachers, entertainers, entrepreneurs, subject matter experts, and more. Tune in to Shared History on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you know the drill. And follow us at Shared Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, share you later. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And we're back. Now let's dig into the national anthem of it all in the hopes that we will understand music and artistry 
and pressure and nationalism and chuggy a little bit better by the end of this. So we're going to start with a bit of history, of course. Unfortunately, the national anthem's origin story involves the War of 1812, which is extremely boring. And I say that as a historian who specializes in the 19th century. But, you know, we need to talk about it a little bit for context, but we're going to skate past most of it. Do not worry. Um, Some of you may know that the words to the Star Spangled Banner come from a poem composed in 1814 called The Defense of Fort McHenry. And this poem was composed by an enslaver slash poet, which is big early 19th century American energy to have those be like your two titles. Um, From Maryland, Francis Scott Key, after witnessing a battle in the war. So the whole vibe of the war of 1812 and I apologize to like actual scholars of this war but like essentially it was the 13 colonies separated from Britain a few decades ago a la the revolutionary war and the U.S. and Britain are now like back at it again in another war that the very new U.S. could easily lose but ultimately no one wins the war aka everyone sort of loses we call it a draw And that's something to celebrate. It's extremely dumb and boring, but mercantilism and imperialism answered to no one and not losing the war meant that the U.S. could continue to be a country. And for some people, that indeed was something to celebrate. Not many, probably, but for some. Mimi, I never don't love learning about 19th century American history from you. Every time. That means a lot. (laughs) So... Um, As Mimi just described, that's the context in which Key writes this poem that becomes the anthem. So he's witnessing the Battle of Baltimore, where the U.S. successfully defends the city and Fort McHenry from British forces on land and water. And he writes this dumb poem about, you know, quote unquote, America's victory, a.k.a. didn't win but didn't lose moment. And the obscurity of the content and the 1814 language of it all makes it lyrically inaccessible at best it's one of the reasons it's incredibly hard to sing and people mess up the lyrics while performing all the time you know someone is probably singing and messing up the lyrics to the national anthem at any given moment of any day right now because it is a complex poem masquerading as a song with lyrics that everyone should know I just want to also note, if you are someone listening, studying for the AP U.S. history exam, this will be very easy for you. And I hope you incorporate our notes into a DBQS that you have to write. Uh, And let's switch back to the tune itself for the Star Single Banner actually came about in the late 1700s, a few decades before the War of 1812. Maybe ironically, it was written in London by British composer John Stratford Smith, a.k.a. the most English name in the entire world. And throughout the 1800s, this tune has was applied to a number of different political and patriotic settings, depending on the moment. So it's so American. Shifting the lyrics to, to fit a specific purpose, it became a song about abolition or temperance or suffrage in America. You get the idea. So how did the War of 1812 version become the national anthem? World War I brought a lot of patriotic fervor into the mix and famously bad president Woodrow Wilson decided in 1816 via executive order that this song and this version of it would be the national official national anthem. His favorite movie classic infamously was the birth of a nation so he had extremely poor taste when it came to art and culture and morals 
Then 15 years later, with Congress's approval, also famously bad President Herbert Hoover signed the executive order into law in 1931. And here we are 90 years later with the bizarre, confusing anthem we never really asked for, just pervading thousands of cultural milestones and holding us hostage. Absolutely. Um, and for those following along real closely, um, Becky did mention that that happened in 1816. But, you know, if we're following the timeline, that was 1916 when President Wilson. Oops. <laughs> it's OK. I think I think people are, you know, following along very closely and taking notes. Which That was actually a test for right. those out there studying for the AP U.S. history exam. Yeah, that was for the multiple choice portion. Um, yeah. And right. we hope you caught it. And and good job for those of you who did. So let's finish this groundwork laying by talking about the music itself, not just who composed it or different ways it's been used, but like the actual notes and why this song is so hard to sing. So the lowest and the highest note of the song are an octave and a half apart, a.k.a. 12 full notes, which I don't know much about music but I'm learning through this through this exploration that that is way too much for a song to have an octave and a half apart in the lowest and highest notes you don't get that kind of range with oh Canada or God Save the Queen like not even close and it starts jumping around immediately going a full octave in the first phrase oh say can you see and having all of these very atypical skips in intervals so there are also like chromatic notes sprinkled in which are notes that don't belong to the same key as the rest of the song. So basically it's just, it's chaotic evil musically. It really, really is. And, you know, people tweak it for different performances, of course, which we'll talk a little bit about, but sort of no matter what, even if you're a great singer with a great range, you have to start very low in the song or you will have a very hard time with higher notes later in the song. Most singers have to switch between their chest and head voice. And some of you listening are probably singers more so than I am or any of us. So you may already know this, but, you know, like chest and head voice, a.k.a. your low notes or your regular and your high notes. And that sort of basically involves using your body and vocal cords and breathing in different ways. Singers have to do that a lot in general, often. But um with the Star Spangled Banner and its intervals that Hannah was just talking about, like it requires singers to do that almost constantly through the song. It's really hard to do. And Vox put together a video with great visuals that explains some of the music theory, some of it on piano. So you can really see. And so um, you can find a link to that in the show notes as well. If you're interested, Vox also saved us some time perusing newspapers.com, which I love to do or sometimes do for work um, and newspapers.com should sponsor me slash us. Um, but they, in this video, shared some articles about people who oppose the Star Spangled Banner precisely because of how ridiculous it is musically. So when it became the national anthem in 1931, like Becky laid out above, the New York Times reported someone complaining that the Star Spangled Banner was a heaven-piercing abomination. They said... No one with a normal esophagus can sing that without screaming. It's the poorest thing in the way of a popular song that I have ever heard. And a number of music teachers at the time protested it becoming the national anthem because it was too difficult to be, quote, rendered properly by virtually everyone. They suggested, like, America the Beautiful. You know, why not? 
but no dice. So here we are with an anthem that very few people can sing, and even the ones who can still easily mess it up. So I want you to take all that background in place. We're going to go through some of the most iconic performances of the Star Spangled Banner, for better or for worse, sometimes both. And we've explained how even the most straightforward performances are hard to pull off. And a lot of artists will put their own spin on it, often to reaffirm their standing or legacy, to catapult them into a new level, or just to move people with a certain arrangement and messaging. And because millions of people are often tuning in for these performances at a national sporting event or musical or political, it's a milestone no matter what happens and the pressure is on. It's honestly hard to even create a list of performances because there are so many we could talk about. But don't worry, we've narrowed them down. Links to all performances are also in the show notes. So maybe consider pulling the car over and following along by absorbing all of this content in real time. Let's go. Okay. So we are going to start with two performances from the late 1960s. Two of the earliest examples of artists straying from the traditional anthem arrangement and putting their own spin on it in meaningful ways. They sound very different from each other, but are both performing at this convergence between the American civil rights movement and accelerating U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, which was abysmal, but also like forced patriotism into the national conversation in a very big and and militaristic way. So. Let's start with 1968. Puerto Rican artist Jose Feliciano performed the national anthem at the World Series, and it sounded nothing like it. Well, in the best way, in in our opinion, but a lot of people found it insulting. It's like this sweet, hopeful, but melancholy, anti-war, Latin jazz folk song. Um, It's really great. It's like a really beautiful rendition. And he was booed almost immediately after he finished performing. So this is definitely one you might want to pull up this video. He was the first pop artist to really personalize the song on a major stage. And while the backlash like very much damaged his career, the performance also opened doors for other artists to interpret the anthem in their own ways. And interestingly, this version was released as a single and charted on the Billboard Hot 100, becoming the first version of the anthem ever to do that. So in some ways, this moment is a really clear snapshot of of how polarizing the national anthem is, right? Like some people are booing and some people are charting this song, which definitely reflects how polarized the country is and was at the time. That version definitely gives me chills. It's so beautiful. But next we're going to talk about almost immediately after this, 1969, and Jimi Hendrix performing the national anthem at Woodstock, um, which I think he was not originally planning to do, but essentially it's a, this is the only like non vocal performance we're talking about here today. It was like fully electric guitar rendition with a lot of distortion. And he was basically reclaiming the song for a new counterculture generation. This I think is a really interesting version it doesn't have to be like psychedelic rock is not my favorite genre of music but I respect it and I really respect this performance because there was this uproar um, over him performing it in a non-traditional way or an unorthodox way even though like he's totally in tune and he's in time and he's hitting every note but he adds these distortions 
And it's so creative because you can basically hear he makes the guitar sound like bombs and explosions happening. And there's like an anti-war message within it. It's unreal. But then it's also kind of reverent. Like there's this optimism and hope that another world is possible. And he kind of like shifts between them throughout. It's subversive and it's amazing. Um, Unlike with Feliciano's version, a lot of criticisms were delayed because uh, the people who would be upset by this weren't at Woodstock and it wasn't like broadcast live. So they actually didn't see it until um, some people until the following year. And then he started getting like hate mail about his performance being unorthodox and like, why did he play it that way, et cetera. And he, he got this in interviews. Um, there's a, there's a famous uh, Dick Cavett interview where he says, I don't think it was unorthodox. I think it was beautiful. And he, they were like, why did you play it? And he was like, I'm American. So I played it, you know, a man, a few words, like in general and soft-spoken, but um, yeah, it's, it's pretty powerful. And I also think that this version is an incredible teaching tool. I've like added it to different um, curricula before for this period of history, because it really, it's like, it really captures the fear and the hope of that time and of like every time in a way, but it's really cultural criticism via guitar. It's reverent. It's radical. It's a protest. It's a celebration. Like it's, it's amazing in that way. So this is all to say, I don't think either of the performances we just talked about are chuggy. <laughs> They're definitely not. Agreed. Uh, zero on the chuggy scale, right? Agreed. I rewatched, um, that the Jimi Hendrix performance this morning and like I don't know if I'd ever seen the whole thing maybe I had um and it was just like it it was amazing (laughs) not to like I don't know the way that he like would play a few familiar notes in almost a familiar way and the minute you find yourself kind of like falling back into that he just rips that out from under you and at specifically key moments like I definitely noticed he kind of did like, and the, and the land of the free and then at free just like ripped it. I, you know, oh my goodness. So that was really something special to be able to rewatch for this. Yeah. I think now also something that is equally as special, if you would allow me to take you to 1980s for a minute and talk uh, about one more performance that took the energy of the national anthem in a whole new direction. I don't know for you, but I have, in fact, never clapped along the Star Spangled Banner before I heard this rendition. Uh, And this, the one I'm referring to is Marvin Gaye's version at the NBA All-Star Game in 1983. Because the crowd was vibing after being very confused at first because we know no one likes change. But they got used to it. And this one is also not everyone's style. And it was surprising. But Marvin Gaye was performing for a crowd that loved him and is pretty well received. He had just made a comeback in his career after years of personal struggle, and this version is very hopeful and joyful and soulful, and it sounds nothing like the traditional arrangement, and it's beautiful. Yeah, this one's this one's harder to describe, I think, but again, it's like he's like wearing these like really dark shades, and he's just like, he just seems like blissful and serene, and everyone there loves him. It's amazing. Um And I just think sort of connecting this one to the above, like there's something revolutionary about a song that traditionally celebrates state violence, as we talked about early on. 
which is so often enacted on Black people, being turned on its head and reappropriated for good. Um, And in that way, it's similar to the examples above, especially Jimi Hendrix and Marvin Gaye are connected, and they both died young and, and unexpectedly a year after their respective performances. So, you know, in the moment and the backdrop of their times, these performances seem to be about the unrealized potential and promise of the country and in retrospect they're also about you know the unrealized promise and potential of these two artists who are still two pillars of American music um and their their legacy performances like these are specific circumstances but national anthem performances often have that potential to become touchstones of an artist's career or you know political um and and pop cultural touchstones. We love it. We love to see it and we hate to see it, you know. So speaking of musical vanguards and legacy performances, let's get to the main event. Is there anything more iconic than Whitney Houston's 1991 Super Bowl version of The Star-Spangled Banner, which happened at the height of her career? Musically, it's a more traditional version than the ones we just talked about, but it definitely has gospel elements and can never be replicated by anyone because Whitney alone had the voice, that voice. So what Whitney does here is she goes beyond that 12 note octave range we talked about earlier because of course, and she makes it look effortless, which is wild. And it's one of those traditional yet individualized performances that virtually no one could criticize. Um, someone in the YouTube comments of, of this performance said she made the fighter jet flyover that happened at the end of her performance look anticlimactic. <laughs> and that's, that's simply the truth. Um, and the, she kind of goes like up and down in terms of how much energy she's giving it, which just keeps it like incredibly, um, just interesting. It's a really interesting few minutes of music. And unfortunately, interestingly, this performance wasn't actually recorded live. She lip-synced to a pre-recorded uh, pre-recorded track, which when I first heard about that, I was so upset, but then I did some research and I learned that like, I mean, kind of what we're talking about in this entire episode is that this is an incredibly high stakes event. And um, I mean, we'll talk about why this particular rendition was high stakes, but um, other other people have have done this. Like Jennifer Hudson's version was also lip-synced in more modern history. Um, and this, this version was released as a single and made it into the top 10 of the Billboard Hot 100 and certified platinum, which is unprecedented for this otherwise mostly very dumb song. Yeah, I was also upset when I first learned um, that this, she, yeah, that, that she, she sang, but that the version was pre-recorded and her mic was off. Um, and Hannah said she was going to boycott this episode as a result of that, which I fully understand, but she came around. Um, yeah, that's true of, it's true of like Beyonce too. Like a lot of, a lot of people do it for various reasons or the decision is made for them because of the like acoustics in the venue or something like that. So anyway, um, she sang it other times live, even that year later on. And it sounded the same. It sounded amazing. So um right it's not like it's lip synced yeah. and auto-tuned right it's exactly lip syncing exactly something that she is fully capable of doing has done a million times will do a million times right something that she did in like one take two weeks earlier um 
I think the most, the biggest takeaway of this episode is that this version was released as a single on the literal day I was born, (laughs) which I just learned this week, actually. So that's, you know, something we can all think about. I think it means a lot to all of us um, as a world to know that. So in terms of the context of, of this performance, like Entertainment Weekly at the time said that the Gulf War fervor has turned Houston's performance into an unlikely overnight pop hit, which it did, and which is not what we want. We don't want war hits. In that sense, it's like the opposite of Jimi Hendrix's anti-war version. Um, But, you know, it's definitely more meaningful than like war is beautiful and fun and euphoric. Her version is not quite that. The meaning is like very multifaceted of this performance um, because we have to remember that this song was definitely not written for someone like Whitney to sing. And you could say the same about the artist we mentioned earlier. And then she recorded the most timeless, untouchable version. There is also a play that sometimes gets mentioned with this performance. There's a play that came out in 1991 called Angels in America, which is about the AIDS epidemic and the Reagan era. So it's done a few years before. Um, There's a character in it who's a Black former drag queen called Belize who says to this like white Jewish New Yorker type character called Lewis says I hate this country it's just big ideas and stories and people dying and then people like you the white cracker who wrote the national anthem knew what he was doing he set the word free to a note so high nobody could reach it that was deliberate Um, which I think is a really powerful line especially in the context of Whitney, like in that same moment, basically performing the national anthem and going even higher than anticipated in the in the word free. So like, you know, let's not pretend for a minute that that performance cured white supremacy, but still like I get chills every time I listen to it. And that is kind of disorienting, but it's real. Chills. Like we don't deserve Whitney. RIP. Miss her daily. Yeah. And her performance is often what people cite as a case for keeping the national anthem as it is. If it weren't so incredibly difficult to sing, we wouldn't get these occasional exceptional performances. Unclear really how true that is, but again, it speaks to this obsession with exceptional individuals. And this version emotionally resonates with so many different types of people and could probably make almost everyone feel patriotic, which is a little terrifying, especially since this recording had one of the biggest broadcasts ever and also happened against the, the backdrop of the Gulf War. And then they used it again to be re-released after 9-11, I think, you know, when people really needed to feel some kind of like America, fuck yeah, which is always what I think about from the South Park movie. Learning or- that fact from I didn't know that until this episode, that it was re-released as a single after 9-11. And that really makes me I don't know that makes me feel feelings you know it's kind of chuggy I would love girl bossy it's a little chuggy there there are some things that I would say to the two of you that I don't say on this podcast because it feels inappropriate and I think we all feel that way about some things um but I think I mean I'm definitely like <laughs> when did 9-11 become chuggy oh no no I think that's a gonna, for a different day and I'm going to take yeah. us back on course. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to I'm going to walk that back. But what I will say is that um, when it was re-released, like the fact that it was re-released meant that this song was Whitney's last top 10 hit in her lifetime, because when it was re-released, it like was catapulted to the top again. 
Wow. Yeah. Damn. Well, I have a question. Do you think if the Gulf War and the this infusion of patriotism hadn't been present in 1991, would she have done a live version? Like, do you think that's one of the things that kind of tipped the scale in terms of the pros and cons of doing a recorded version? There was the so stakes. much pressure. Yeah. I don't know enough about Whitney to know if she actually had a history of lip, lip syncing her songs, not in an insulting way, but in like, it's a challenging singing and doing a live performance is challenging, especially for how robust her voice is. Um, so I don't, that aside, I, I think she probably would have felt the pressure to get it right. No yeah. matter what. I, I also don't know if it, that's a good question. Cause I, she may have done it live because I don't know that it was her decision. You know, I think it was just like, this is the biggest broadcast ever to happen. And part of that is because of these wars and it raises the stakes. Um, and so maybe they just like someone, someone in the decision room was like very neurotic. I get the sense. Um, I don't know if it was her because she had like, she couldn't, she had so much talent that it seemed like she couldn't miss. Like she's like never, you know, in these, in this part of her career, like never could sing out of key. She just, it's just like so natural that I don't know. I don't know if it was nerves or not. I, I think it was probably someone else being like neurotic about imperialism. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that neuroses really set a standard. And <laughs> these big performances of the Star Spangled Banner are now broadcast to millions of people live and come with these live reaction shots from athletes, politicians, other celebrities, people in the crowd. In addition to the scary fighter jet flyovers and other imperialist overtures. So it's really something to wonder about certain artists and thinking about as they're performing, aside from this is a big opportunity for me and I hope I don't fuck it up. Like, what were the chicks thinking during their 2003 Super Bowl performance? Oh, what a performance. I mean, their otherworldly harmonies aside, at this moment in 2003, the U.S. is on the brink of the Iraq War and the chicks were on the brink of being blacklisted by a large portion of their fan base for disagreeing with concepts like imperialism and endless war but we didn't know that yet did we so there's some like whiplash to seeing them sing this and basically peak in approval when like six weeks later they're experiencing almost a 180 so it makes you wonder like did the praise that they got from this overtly patriotic moment give them a false sense of security in terms of what they could say about the bush administration and the war without major backlash or did it just confirm to them how fervently patriotic so much of the country was? And then they decided to speak up because maybe of the way that they were so closely associated with patriotism in this moment. And they were like, this feels wrong. This doesn't feel like who we really are. And it's also the only group performance on this list, which maybe makes these questions even more interesting because they're navigating all of this together, even though Natalie, of course, is the one who says the thing that makes the thing happen that if you want to learn more, uh, we have a, we have a chicks, a chicks episode. The chicks are so punk. The chicks are all punk. What's it called? The chicks are all punk. Yeah. Yeah. Great app. If you, if you want more about that. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to think about. And then I was like, there aren't that many group performances of this in general around the same time. I think the year before it was like the Backstreet Boys, but I don't think the Backstreet Boys were in their minds facing the same moral dilemma so I don't know 
Yeah, moving forward, there are so many other noteworthy performances and artists. We could talk about Aretha Franklin, Mariah Carey, Lady Gaga. Just this year at the presidential inauguration or Beyonce at Obama's in 2013 where she takes out her earpiece because of some audio issue while not even missing a beat. Hashtag praise. But we need to talk about some artists who, you know, did miss a few beats or one. Because regardless of the political backdrop, this song reminds re- this song remains extremely hard to sing well and holds a ton of weight for far too many people. Enter Christina, ex Tina Aguilera at the 2011 Super Bowl. Here she is. All right, so ex Tina starts this performance in a good place, like in her career and in the song itself. She starts with a very low note, giving herself some room for the upper the upper octaves, which we talked about being important. Um, but, you know, it goes downhill within the first minute. In the, like, third and fourth line, instead of, or the ramparts we watched, we're so gallantly streaming, she sang what so proudly we watched at the Twilight's last reaming, which... <laughs> Uh, doesn't mean anything, but um, the Star Spangled Banner is nonsense, like, but we all know that that is not quite right, including Christina. She knew it as well. I want to say, like, like, if I were going to mess up the Star Spangled Banner singing it, which I absolutely would, it would be, like, exactly at that place. Like, those lines are the ones that are just, like, what? Like, <laughs> always. So, to her credit, she sang a cappella, an arrangement often matters. Like most of these other people either accompanied themselves or had like full orchestras behind them. And you can't hide when you're singing a cappella, you know? Um, you can't hide behind anything when you make a mistake. And then also, like the lyrics continue to just be a stupid poem from 1814 written by an enslaver that she has to sing in front of millions of people. And she went on to sing the rest of the song with all of the correct lyrics. Like she just kept going, but people were mad. And they also said she oversang, which she does a lot. Like we know what we're getting into. And, you know, she is definitely riffing a lot and over-exaggerating notes to a degree that some people find insulting. She screams brave at the end. And then she goes, woo, Uh, which is very funny. Um, to me, and I think this is more the angle of the shot than anything, but it looked like the fighter jets were, like, <laughs> flying away scared. Like, they were, like, <laughs> flying out of the stadium. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. And that's really the angle of the shot more than anything else. A commenter on you- on some YouTube video said that watching Christiana Aguilera sing is, like, watching someone weightlift, which I thought was, like, really apt and, like some, oh, like, a description I've been looking for forever, like, it's really impressive. It looks really impressive and hard to do, but it's also sort of stressful and exhausting to witness. And that seems true to me. So I remember, I like know about this, you know, disaster people, some people say, and, you know, I, uh, in that Vox video that we mentioned, that's linked in the show notes, there's like a, a brief moment of, of, um, Christina talking about how, how tough this moment was on Ellen and so when I went in to rewatch this performance, I was expecting something really horrible. And actually it's like, it's not. There's just like moments of discomfort and 
mostly it's it's uncomfortable because you know that what happens next, which was backlash. But I was like, oh, this was not as bad as I remembered. Like, it's not a big deal. But I mean, mostly what happened after this was that people were upset about that one lyrical mess up. And some did even call it a disaster, basically saying that it was the biggest moment of her career and she blew it. Twitter was a flutter and her Wikipedia page was updated immediately to record the incident. And Christina was like apparently devastated and apologized saying, I can only hope that everyone could feel my love for this country and that the true spirit of its anthem still came through. Like, can you believe that when someone messes up this ridiculous 1814 poem, they have to apologize and say, say that they still love America? Like, it feels so weird that she had to apologize. And the affirmation of love for America is also uncomfortable. She sang the anthem a bunch before without any issues, and it is nerve-wracking, so give her a break. But, you know, it does just go to show how wildly high stakes these performances are, which are still often about affirming a lot of bad values and traditions. And, yeah, it's it sucks for her. Christina will always make the list of, like, quote-unquote, national anthem fails from here on out. And it's it's definitely seen as a low point of her career, even though it went by so fast and could happen to anyone. And maybe we should instead be shaming Francis Scott Key and racial capitalism. Too true. And this is, okay, so this is the first, I think, on the list we've talked about that I would consider Chugi. I think it's, like, a perfect candidate um, as a performance. You know, 2011, like, chef's kiss. Um, but... Also making fun of it, I think, is chuggy. It's like, we get it. You know what I mean? Like, enough already. And if I weren't, it's like you said, Hannah, the backlash, like, knowing uh, makes it seem even worse than it really was. Like, if I were sort of half watching the Super Bowl, which is, like, what I would usually do, I wouldn't even notice, probably, because she just kept going and it was fine. Um, I don't know. Any other thoughts on... Extina before we move on it's not a thought about Extina but it's connected yeah go ahead well thinking about how much Christina like the backlash that she got and the highs and the stakes of all of this um like kind of you know we didn't we don't have a section of this episode dedicated to Demi Lovato's 2020 performance um but it you know it was timed very closely with her Grammy Grammy's performance which she also nailed and she nailed both of them and that was really seen as like a big part of her her comeback which was orchestrated to coincide perfectly with March of 2020 which you know didn't work well for anyone but I think that like part of why the Star Spangled Banner was an important moment for Demi Lovato to get right is because people know like it it almost you know these fails prove the same way that Whitney Houston's like perfection proved to some people that we should keep it because you get these moments. I actually think the fails do the same thing. They prove to people like this is fun and it's high stakes every time. And it gives artists like, like these big, big moments of their career. Um, And I think that she was very proud of herself for doing a good job and she should be, but it's like, you know, you shouldn't have to, I don't know. The stakes just shouldn't be so high. Totally. It's, it's really wild that like three minutes comes down to so much and is, and can be a permanent mark on your legacy in a good way or a bad way. And yeah, like, especially in the context of her life and career, it's really interesting. Um, 
it's weirdly I would never compare her to Marvin Gaye but it's kind of like Marvin Gaye's come back a little bit you know I don't know um but let's talk about one more performance back to the the fails of it all and the shaming and the low points but also like a little bit of fun we've got to talk about one more performance and that is Fergie's of course in 2018 after some time out of the spotlight and if you want to know more about Fergie's life after the Black Eyed Peas in particular you can listen to our uh Q&A episode episode 14 where I basically give a Wikipedia rundown of Fergie's life but she sang the Star Spangled Banner at the NBA All-Star Game in 2018 and like Marvin Gaye literally 35 years before it was like a slowed down rendition with a swing to it but the comparisons really stop there they really end there it's not that she can't hit notes or that she forgets the lyrics it's just like the way she sings it is out of control and frankly unprecedented I think if you go to any performance on YouTube um there will be comments that are like Fergie sent me here (laughs) it's towards the end she's when she says like she's like banner yet at wave like I will never forget that. And then at the very end, she yells, let's play some basketball, which is like amazing. I feel unworthy to have that sound bite. Um, And I think a lot of the people there did as well. Like this performance is incredibly bizarre, but it's also arguably a net positive. You know, it's kind of like circled back around to phenomenal because it's brought so much humor and joy. And you can see like all of the basketball players, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, Chance the Rappers in the crowd, like, barely trying to hold it together and they're all like full-on they're just like smiling by the end and of course you know like the internet has been having a field day with it ever since which always has its downside yeah pretty immediately Fergie was blasted on social media for attempting a quote-unquote sexy version of the national anthem which is very funny concept because again it's like dude like she's sexy let her live but like Xtina's before hers, Fergie's performance is now a major mark on her career. And like Xtina, Fergie apologized saying, I'm a risk taker artistically, but clearly this rendition didn't strike the intended tone. I love this country and honestly tried my best. Again, needing to apologize and confirm patriotism. We don't love to see it, but we do love this performance and salute anyone else who's ever messed up their performance at the Star Spangled Banner. It's completely understandable. And the song has served to rally people behind the worst aspects of America many times. So leave Fergie alone. The Star Spangled Banner should be the one apologizing. It is a unique fail in the in the history of, of Anthem fails because it's one of the only fails I can think of that was intentional. Like she actually did what she set out to do, which makes it really heartbreaking. <laughs> And also makes you wonder why she doesn't have good people around her to give her good advice. That is a great point. She, she right. She doesn't, she's like, I nailed this at the end right. of it. Um, and I, I also don't want there, like, I do think that there is a layer of misogyny probably yeah. in a lot of these criticisms, but I also want to just point out, cause we didn't really talk about it, that like men have also messed up 
celebrity men have also messed up like Cab Calloway who was like a renowned musician like messed up in one of the most iconic performances ever also really bizarre so it's not all that it's just that like Fergie is more recent and you know a lot of people who are very on the internet saw it live um or right after men they're just like us (laughs) (laughs) Hannah do you want to mention the the video that you sent us this morning I would love to mention the remix to uh, Fergie's National Anthem, which when I first saw this, which was probably like right after this in 2018, like I I got, it's anxiety inducing because they're making fun of her. But basically there's this great video where the Warriors um, like did a, 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 did like a team locker room dance to an absolute banger remix of this rendition where it's like, it starts out the way that she sings it, but then when it gets to like the banner that you were doing, it like the 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 beat drops and it's like banner whatever. I'm not gonna do it. Maybe we can drop in some audio. And then here. she's like, "Let's play some basketball. Let's play some basketball." It's so good, and they just have the best time. They're having like an absolutely amazing time together, and they're all being so cute. And you should like watch it a thousand times and look at each basketball player individually when you do and there is someone in the youtube comments who wrote this frankly is why they win titles they ride for each other and it's so true yeah they like they're defending fergie from her ex-husband like they ride for fergie like she's a part of the family now that she (laughs) performed the anthem and they were all a part of this art that's what patriotism is exactly yeah um we pledge allegiance to fergie and and a remix for all Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, that that is going in here. We're gonna play it because I wanted, I sort of wanted to play like all of them because the national anthem is in public domain because it's old. Yeah, but, but like recorded versions of it aren't necessarily. Oh, but really? you know what? I'm taking a risk, and we're putting the the remix in now. Um, and if someone sees us, it's been a good run. All right, so let's, you know, wrap this up uh, with a few. With a tone shift, shall we? (laughs) Like immediate tone shift, yeah. All right, record scratch. So we've talked about this song, where it comes from, who's nailed it, who's done, you know, uh, a less than ideal job. Whether or not this song is good, whether or not the song's difficulty, you know, on the one hand, does it represent the hardworking everyday American or does it represent the pinnacle of American ideals, which are supposed to be available to all, but are actually accessible to a tiny privileged few as Angels in America, you know, discussed. This is the anthem we've got. And the intensity of the moments that we've described here in this episode 
was just about how well the most talented pop stars of our time can sing this song. So it's unsurprising that protesting this anthem causes people to legitimately lose their goddamn minds. So um, that that is what happens. And when we were thinking about, um, you know, talking about Colin Kaepernick taking a knee, um, I don't know. Did you know that Colin Kaepernick taking a knee was inspired by a military vet um, to to like basically he wanted to protest the impunity with which black people are murdered by the police in this country on a regular basis. And Colin Kaepernick knew that the blind patriotism of the anthem at football games was a moment to draw attention to this. You know, some might say tension in American ideals. Some might say, you know, it's the it's the fabric of America. And he originally planned to just remain seated during the anthem. And he had a conversation with a retired Army Green Beret, Nate Boyer, who, after this conversation, um, he decided to take a knee instead, which would symbolize his protest, as well as his respect for all human lives that are lost in and for America. So in our country... The two minutes it takes to sing this anthem are some of the most visible moments of American life, even if the song is actually incredibly, irrevocably bizarre. Thank you for that. I didn't know the full um, origin story. Yeah, me of, either. Yeah, that's great. It's a perfect way to wrap up the totally. Star Spangled Banner. That's not chooky. That is not at all chooky. It's, yeah, it's total opposite and thank you for taking the you know american history ap exam this concludes (laughs) the exam and um you know we'll review it and get back to you shortly so for everyone yay fives all around um no you can skip history in college okay so that's our show Thank you so much for listening and let us know what you think of the episode of the Star Spangled Banner of Chugi. There's a lot of threads to pull out here. And I think that's about it. Let's play some basketball. Thanks for listening to the B-Sides podcast. We want to connect with you. Check out the show notes to find our Instagram, Twitter, and join our Facebook group where you can link up with us and other progressives who love pop. Please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review if you haven't already, and consider supporting the B-Sides on Patreon. Until the next time we cut to the feeling, I'm Mimi. I'm Becky. I'm Hannah. 